this section. This is the last Sunday school class we're going to have in 2019 on Frame's Doctrine of God book. Uh, so this, you've come for the, for the finale for this year. Um, let me talk for just a, just a minute about what's coming next so you, you can have a sense of it. We've been, it's been up on the, the, the schedule that we try to put up each week. I don't think I have the schedule this week in my, in my slideshow. But um, what we'll start next week is this book. This is by Stephen Nichols, who's with Ligonier. Um, it's called A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Uh, timely, uh, I think will be really encouraging and helpful for us. Uh, Chance and Rob are going to be co-teaching through that, so I'm really excited to, to hear from them. They've already been discussing it and, and have been reading through it for some time. The copy I'm holding is from our library. Um, we have one in there, so don't knock anybody over, but first come, first serve in there. You can check this thing out and, and, and read it. We also, it's one of the ones that is available in audio, free for us uh, through Christian Audio, the Christian Audio app. Any of us can, can get on there uh, through our church login and listen to, I think it's Stephen Nichols himself reading through it uh, for free. But just uh, to give you kind of a preview, um, six chapters, it's not, not a big book, um, and this is going to deal with a number of things, including confidence in God, confidence in the Bible, where it will go through um, it, some of the things we studied, I guess, I think at least you, Art, I remember, taught or co-taught through uh, several years ago. Uh, why we can trust our Bibles, our English Bibles, you know, the, the issues of transmission of the biblical text, confidence in Christ, confidence in the gospel, confidence in hope. A lot of this is, is going to involve stories from history, times even worse than ours. Imagine that. There have been times worse than ours in, in human history, much worse, and yet God has proven himself incredibly worthy of trust through those times. We'll be reminded of those sorts of things in this book, so I'm really looking forward to it. A good way to end out a year, I think. So we'll start with that uh, next week. This week we have, look at the title of this chapter. Uh, we're still, this is the final uh, chapter in the section on attributes of God. We've seen the names of God, images of God in scripture, and now for a while we've been looking at, at uh, how his attributes are revealed in, in scripture. And the title for this week is uh, God as Lord of space, matter, light, and breath. He sometimes puts things in very unusual ways that I hadn't thought of, and this is one of those times. We saw Lord of time last week, right? So let me just let you in on what he's getting at with this title. Uh, this is what he means with these things. He's going to be uh, dealing in this chapter with he, on the right side are words we're more accustomed to. The omnipresence of God, right? Um, and the, the theological concept of the immensity of God. He takes that, those ideas and calls this, this is God as the Lord of space. The incorporeality of God. God doesn't have a body. Uh, that was one of our the children's catechisms. Uh, what is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Right? Uh, he calls God the Lord of matter. Uh, God is invisible. He, he speaks of that in this way. God is the Lord of light. Do you see what he's doing with this lordship concept? God is spirit. And he'll say God is the Lord of breath. So there are, there are a few ways we could do this. 
Uh, we, could, we could take these matters and we could spend a week on each of them and get, get further in, uh, but still not exhaust. We, if we did that, we would see a lot of overlap, a lot of overlap uh, in what we would say as we went from the omnipresence of God to the incorporeality of God. There'd be a lot of overlap, but there would be a lot to say in each of these. That's not how we've scheduled things. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to use this morning only to work our way through this chapter. And so here's how we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, I'll state it in one sentence, and you'll be able to see with this slide up that this sentence is kind of a, a, a blending together of each of, of, of a lot of these categories. Right? Um, we're going to examine, here we go, we're going to examine God's relationship to space. I don't mean outer space, I mean the concept of space. We're going to examine God's relationship to space as a spirit, an incorporeal being. See how we've blended a lot of these together in that one sentence. Um, th- this, is, this is not only interesting, I, it is going to be really interesting. It's, it's very informative for us in terms of how we think of God and of, of how we worship God. Uh, what are our expectations for what he's doing uh, in, in, in our physical reality? Uh, and there will be a lot of room, uh, time, I think, for some comments and questions as we go through as well. Before we go any further, let's stop and pray, ask the Lord to guard us and bless our time. So if you would bow your heads with me. Father, we, we confess our constant, steady need of your wisdom, of your word. We thank you for the time you've given us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the humility that you are growing in us as we come to see more and more uh, just how, uh, how, how far short we fall in our own abilities to, uh, to fathom you. You are incomprehensible. And yet, Lord, you have stooped and condescended to us as your creatures. You have revealed yourself to us uh, truly, though not exhaustively. And I pray as we look into uh, the verses we're going to see this morning about these topics, we pray that you would protect us uh, and that as we come to see truth about you, that we would respond in praise, we would respond in ways that are fitting to these truths, that it would increase our, our trust in you. It would increase our faith. It would increase our sense of confidence and peace. Because every little bit that we come to understand better about you, that is the result for your people. We are more peaceful as a result. We are more confident. And we're more grateful for who you are. So guard us and bless us in those ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we brought up a question in that context, and we said, this is not really the... It's not really that good of a question, <laughs> um, but it, it, and it's kind of the wrong question, but we, we, we could word it this way as a helpful launching off point. That was what we did. And here was that, that question was, uh, how powerful is God? How powerful is God? It's not really the best question in the world, but it was helpful to us to, to launch off into some of those, those discussions. We can do that with this week, too, with some of these things. So he, here's the the uh, less than ideal but, but helpful starting point question for this week. Here's the question. How big is God? 
How big is he? Can you already sense why that's kind of not the greatest question? Kind of a wrong question? But we're going to start there and then get to some better places, all right? (laughs) So bear with me. I already see some furrowed brows here. I know that's not the best question. Uh, This is what can lead us to some of the truths that the Bible reveals to us in in these contexts. When we try to wrestle with the question of the, the, uh, the, the bigness of God, one of the words that we have historically used to help us to think through this and to give us some parameters about how we should think through it, we've used a word that is not in the Bible, but it's got a rich theological history. It's the word immensity. We have spoken uh, in the church about the immensity of God. So this is where we will start here. What do we mean when we speak of the immensity of God? Uh, We mean a number of things. Here's one thing we mean. God fills space. There is no place, right? There is no place in existence that where God is not. He fills space. But we mean much more than that when we think about the immensity of God. What we find, in fact, is that uh, when we think of God in these terms and we search the scriptures, we find that God is not simply omnipresent, um, to use a word we haven't gotten to yet. He's not simply um, present everywhere in space. In fact, he transcends space altogether. Uh, There are a number of places where God is worshipped in scripture in ways that bear this out. So we have, for example, places like 1 Kings 8.27. This is a better question to ask than how big is God. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. And notice the way that that is stated. The highest heaven can't contain you. He is not limited by the parameters of space. He transcends space. We have this from Isaiah 66. Heaven is God's throne. Excuse me. Um, this is, I think this is one and two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So heaven is pictured as the throne of God, earth as the footstool. The king is greater than the throne he sits on, right? There are comparisons woven within some of these, these metaphors that help us, that help us to, to, to have a proper sense of how we think of God in relation to, uh, to space. We're doing something similar to some of what was done last week about God and time. Uh, here's something that, that Frame says in this chapter. He says, God is with his creatures in space and time. Uh, But here's the question. How are we thinking of that? Are we thinking of God then as this being whose outline is stretched to fill all the possible places we might go? He's extended throughout space. Is that what we mean when we speak of him as being present with us? And so Frame says this. If he is extended through space, here's one consequence of that idea. He cannot be present as a whole person to every creature. Rather, he would have to be divided into parts so that part of him is present to one person and another part is present to another person. This is not the biblical doctrine of God's omnipresence. 
In Scripture, God is presented as a whole person to all. This implies that he is as fully present at one point in space as at any other. So very important understanding that we have as we're thinking about the omnipresence of God um, is that, that he is fully present everywhere. He is not partially present here and partially present in China, a different part of him. And on Jupiter, there's a different part of him there. He is fully present everywhere. This is a part of what we mean when we speak of God's omnipresence. Now let's jump now to that word. We've, we've been, we're kind of talking about immensity here. Let's jump to, uh, to omnipresence. Now check out this title. I think I even maybe outdid Frame's title for the chapter. If you've sat in a lesson with this title on a, on a slide, you know that you, I mean, you can feel pretty smart just to have, have gone through this title. Um, Spatial omnipresence of a non-physical being. I mean, that's big time. We're in the big leagues now, right? For us. Um, that's, that's, that's just a longer way to say omnipresence. We're thinking specifically of his omnipresence in space. Spatial omnipresence. But, so here's, here's the... It's the problem. God is not, he doesn't have a body. He's not a physical being. So what are we even talking about? What do we mean when we speak of him as being present in space? When he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have a physical form, right? You see, there's, there's need for us on the edges of some of these ideas to kind of hammer down what we think we're talking about here. Um, he is not defined, no, jumped ahead. You don't get to see that yet. Uh, He's not defined as a physical substance spread throughout the universe. So what do we mean when we speak of God as being omnipresent in space? And this, I think, is a very helpful clarification that Frame makes here. He says, okay, here's what we mean when we say that this non-physical being is fully present everywhere. Here's what we mean. We mean that his power... His knowledge and his ability to act in the finite world, those things are universal. Any, every place you could go where there is space at all, in every one of those places, his uh, power is universal there. His knowledge is universal there. His ability to act is complete there. That's right. One of the things that I mean, you're getting at, I think, a, a, a main priority of his in this chapter, and that is to, to protect us from two things. The first we've already looked at, it's that, you said, boils gas law? This notion that his omnipresence just means he, that he, he fills this whole thing up. Um, but the, the, the other side is to protect against, I mean, when we think of the transcendence of God, he's not limited by, by space in any sense. We also have to protect against the, the idea that that means that somehow he's excluded from space. That like this is a realm that he can't enter into or something like that. The other side must be protected against as well. And I think that putting those together, uh, unless I'm totally misunderstanding you, I think that's really, it, those are very, both very important sort of bookends for us. Um, when I think of God as not being physical, I must not make the mistake of thinking 
that that means he's not in this room right now. And it, you could see how easy it would be to come to that conclusion. That's, that's false. That's not true. He fills all in all. So we're just, what we're doing, and these are kind of mental gymnastics to try to, to help us to be fit in how we are conceiving of, of God and his relationship to us. In this case, his relationship to the physical creation. Yeah. I'm not sure that that word's coming up here, uh, but that's, that's what we're talking about. Yes. The difference between that he is both transcendent and imminent. And I, I think that this definition of omnipresence helps with this, because what do I mean even when I use the word imminent? I like this definition of what we're talking about. We're speaking in reference to his power, his knowledge, his ability to act. Um, that helps to distinguish some things for me so that I might not accidentally be thinking in categories that are not proper for God. Um, I'll take this and put it into a, so th that's kind of a definition, but here's a statement that Frame makes. It's the same idea, maybe more helpful to, to understand. How's this? God can act, excuse me, God can instantly act at any place. He knows everything that happens, and he personally governs and directs everything in the universe. That's the omnipresence of God. I think I hear that and I think, okay, is there something I feel uncomfortable with there? Is there something that feels like it's left out? Because we're just talking about, um, we're talking about his ability to act, his knowledge, his personal governance. We're not talking about him. Like we're not saying that he is there. This is the if it frame says no. We are speaking of him being there. He is there. He, he is not a physical being. There's nothing else to be there. He is fully present everywhere where there is a where, to by where there is a where. Really, really, really big. How big is he? He's really big. Big enough that the question itself ceases to really make, to, 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 to say something true about God. Big being some sort of a spatial category. You see, there, he's bigger than that outside of him, in his presence. And saying that very thing, yes, that's right. There's going to be a couple of heresies we'll see toward the end that that one statement guards us from. Well, we've already, I think we've all figured that out already even just this morning. I mean, we cannot, we cannot comprehend what we're talking about here. There's all sorts of things we say about God that, that we, are, we are commanded to, to learn to say of him because the scriptures reveal it to us. We know it's true. We, we do not understand this, but we know, I mean, the, the, the Bible sets up for us fences where we can say, um, I may not climb over this fence and say these things about this God because the Bible tells me that's, that's not true about him. I may not understand the nature of the fence, <laughs> but I know where I can't go. And, and this, this, we're just seeing an example of that here. But really, any, any realm of doctrine about God, you get deep enough into it, you're going to come up to that. This is, why do we stop here? This is the limit of what the Bible gives us permission to say and think what we need. We're a people who need fences, for sure. Any other thoughts or comments so far here? And talk truly about it. And we are. We're speaking truly about God right now. We're not speaking exhaustively, but we're, we're, we're speaking truth. He's the one who taught us to talk like this about him. And he's not giving us lies. So the best way to speak of God in relation to space, this is why he, he, he wants to, to say, uh, and even 
he doesn't have a problem with the word omnipresence, but he likes to speak in this book in terms of God as the Lord of space. Uh, like Tom was saying, space is a creation of his outside of him. He reigns as Lord over it. He uses it how he pleases. We'll see he enters into it as he pleases. He's not incapable of entering into space. He transcends it, though. He is Lord of space. His authority and power and control are everywhere in it. He is Lord over space. Here's a great set of verses uh, where David thinks on these things. Come back to this in a minute as well. But let me read this for us. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He's, he's using the, the things in his own scientific knowledge base to express, uh, we could add to this list, right? He's expressing that there is nowhere I can go to escape this God. Um, but in this context, it's not, he's not trying to escape. He's really, you see how he ends it in verse 10. He's glorying in the fact that there's nowhere he can go that God will not be with him. God is not there leading and holding him. Let's throw, throw another piece into this, into this conversation, though. I think we've, we've made this clear. But there are many times where the scriptures describe God as being absent in a situation. There are places that describe God as being far off, right? And we are committing in this study to, to uh, searching the scriptures to learn how we should speak about God. We've seen clearly that there is no place I can go that God is not. I'm going to say God is omnipresent and that he's Lord of space because that's what he's shown us of himself in the Bible. But the Bible also says that he is absent in some circumstances and that he's far off. So I have to bring that language into my thinking as well. And, uh, and, and how do I do that? How do I understand those statements? I love this kind of thing, because this is training us in every other area of Bible study. It's training us as to how, how, what kind of students of Scripture we're supposed to be. What do I do as I encounter these things? What kind of thoughts do I think? So one of the things we have to do is we have to think about what, what is it saying in those places where it says that God is absent? Uh, what is that trying to, uh, to convey? And it's conveying something about his presence. So let's think about presence for a minute. Uh, what we do when we look into Scripture and see his presence spoken of is we see that that, that word is used, you know, like every other word in any language, that word is used in more than one way at different times and in different places. I don't get to be lazy and just operate on the assumption that presence is presence is presence is presence. It's always exactly the same everywhere I find it. I have to do the work of reading the sentence and saying, what, what are you saying about his presence here? And there's, Frame identifies three different ways that the idea of God's presence is used in the Bible. When we see these laid out with examples, it's easy to see what he's talking about. So one way that God's presence is spoken of in the Bible is to speak of what we've been talking about this morning. He is present 
uh, at every place. The, we've already seen verses like that, right? Those are statements of truth about his presence. A second way that his presence is talked about is uh, it, it refers in many places to, to, here's how we'll say this to start, to God's unique presence in particular special holy places. God was always present everywhere, but when the burning bush appeared to Moses, there was something different about God's presence in that little, I don't know how big the bush was. There was something different about that spot at that moment that was not true of that spot five minutes before. Anybody could walk past that spot of earth five minutes before, no problem. But now something happens, and now you better take your sandals off or you're going to die. Right. It was not, it's not true of that spot any longer. That's right. That's right. Places to worship where these things happen. And even when they stacked stones up, it wasn't a, it wasn't a worship. It was a remembrance thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're, you're jumping ahead of us here. <laughs> um, do I have the list up here? Yeah, look at, look at this list. Burning bush, Sinai, tabernacle, temple, and even, how about heaven? These are places that are, that are spoken of in the Bible, and, and are, what's said about them in these instances is that God's presence is manifested there in a unique way, special way. Uh, now, this next quote is really important, so I put it up on, on the screen here. Right? Um, this language doesn't mean that God's power, I mean, remember, remember the definition here of omnipresence? God's power, knowledge, ability to act everywhere. The second one, number two here, this language does not mean that God's power, knowledge, and ability to act are greater in the holy places than elsewhere in earth. That's not true. Speaking of presence in the same way that the first one was speaking of presence. You see the distinction that's being made there? What, what's true about those places is not that God's power is greater there. How could God's power be greater? All powerful. All of him is present everywhere. There wasn't more of him present at the burning bush than there is on Jupiter. All of him is everywhere. So that can't increase. What we're saying about those places is that his presence in those moments, in those places, is more, and he uses two words, Frame does, you can tell me what you think about this, uh, more intense and more, I think this one especially, more intimate, more intimate. Or, this afternoon, I'm not particularly um, cognizant of the presence of God in, in, in my path there. But if I walk past Mount Sinai and I see this burning cloud, I'm, I'm aware of something there. And there is a sense of intimacy as I approach that is not, we're just not conscious of. And, we're, and it's not being brought to our attention in other places compared to that place. And he says, um, in these places, God's presence is more intense and more intimate, and the penalties for disobedience are more severe. Makes his dwelling in a place, that place becomes his throne. Show special deference to him there, and we become more aware of his power to bless or curse there. I think the taking off of the sandals is, a, is a, a good concept. We're constantly in God's presence here. David just told us we cannot escape it. But there are certain places that I must treat as holy, uh, and there are consequences if I refuse to do so. 
So this is, this is a, a different use of the idea of presence here. God's presence can come onto a place in this second sense. First sense, you go, how could his presence come onto a place? He's always everywhere. Sure he is. But in this second way of speaking, his presence now comes to a place. His presence is made manifest in a more intense and intimate way um, than, than before. It's a third way that, God's, that the, the concept of presence appears to us, uh, and that is uh, the, the idea of his presence as an ethical um, concept, and having an ethical meaning. So the Bible will say, and this is what we really see in Scripture when we think of absence. God is present with the righteous, and he is absent from the wicked. Is it describing a, an exception to number one? No, of course it's not. It's speaking about something else. He's present with the righteous. He's absent from the wicked. Psalm, sorry? You back up from one, Psalm 139. Yes. 138.6. Hmm. He knows from afar, absolutely. Yep. Wasn't very helpful to click back to Psalm 139 when you read that. Is this where we were? I think so. Um, here's a few other places uh, akin to what, to what Dennis just read. Uh, Isaiah 59.2. Listen to the language. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. They're spoken of there as being separated from God, even though in the first sense you can't be separated from God. But in the third sense you can be. And what separates them? Their iniquities have separated them. And at the end of that verse, their sins have hidden his face from them. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Uh, James 4, 8, and there's other places too where the, the, sometimes the righteous are told to draw near to God. They're invited. But there's a unique sense in which, like in James 4, 8, the wicked are called to draw near to God through repentance. Repent of your sin and draw near to me. And the idea is pretty clear that their sins have separated them from God. If they're going to draw near in this sense, they must turn from their sins, they must be cleansed and draw near. Um, it's funny because in that same, in that same uh, ethical concept, the Bible also speaks of God as specifically being present with the wicked, uh, present in judgment. So we see some other places uh, that, that, um, that would that would speak in that way, and and that's not a contradiction. It's similar language, uh, making different points. Uh, we're going to go back now to Psalm. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I'm catching up here. Psalm 139. I put that on the left now. Remember, this is this is David really rejoicing in the fact that there's nowhere he can go from God's presence that will lead him and that will hold him. Well, look at. Look at Amos 9, 2, and 3 beside it. It's almost like the upside-down version of 
Psalm 139. This is really something. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. That's something to put those side by side. I mean, so much hangs on your relationship to God. Here's one thing that doesn't hang on that. You're not getting away from him. But what hangs on it is, what does that mean for you that you're not getting away from him? There is one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. If I have the Son, I have the Father also. If I have the Son, if he is mine and I'm his, then the fact, <clears throat> the fact that I cannot get away from God is the source of all my blessing. It is the source of all hope and confidence and peace. I can sleep like a baby because I know it does not matter where I go in my life, he can, he, no one can separate me from his love. Isn't that what Paul emphasizes in Romans? Height, depth, uh, depth that, that list that he, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ. It's the very source of my peace. But if I do not have the Son, then that same reality is the very source of my greatest fears. There is nothing I can do to get away from him, and he will find me. He will take me. Judgment. That, that's, that's something for us to, to remember. Uh, what are you thinking as you hear that? Any, any thoughts you want to share? Hear what he said he's asking about, or making the point of, that we, we should reflect on what this says about, about the moment of Christ's being forsaken on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? One thing it does... I'll throw this out there and hear what everyone else says too, but it, it cert this certainly gives us language to use to talk about it, to know how to think about it. This, um, we speak of the Father hiding his face from the Son, this sort of thing. There is this distancing from him as the object of, God, of his own wrath. Um, far from him in presence, near to him in judgment. Now, God, God with us in the person of Christ, and you're right, we are getting there. That's... Nice, as you wrestle with these thoughts, one, one leads to the next. Uh, and that usually matches the, uh, the flow of a chapter in a good book like this. <laughs> People don't know it uh, consciously sometimes, and they mock. I mean, that's the, that's the jaw-dropping, that sort of dramatic irony of the worst kind of a Psalm 2 of a, in other places of, let's just, let's just throw off his chains and walk away from him. And they have no idea what they're, what they're choosing for themselves. They don't have... Yeah. The, the utter hopelessness. Have you, have you ever talked with someone who's, who's claimed to be a Christian and there's, things are blowing up or there's unrepentant sin and, and they finally get to a point where they just say, well, you know what? I guess I'm just not saved then. And you go, stop and think about what you just said. You're acting like there's, there's some kind of a path here that you can just walk, walk away from and what? what? What do you think you're choosing here? If that's true, the only thing left to you is no mercy, unending 
torment. There's no appeals process. There's no, there's no, what are you throwing your hands up about? Like, you're not in a position of choice here. You've got to fall on your knees right now. There's, no, there's nothing else to do than this. And yet, I mean, there's, there's a blindness. I mean, that's, this, is, this seems to be other language the Bible uses to explain our irrational behavior in our sin. We have been blinded so that we might not see sometimes. And that's, anyway, I'm getting off, off script here. Um, let, let's, let's draw a few conclusions, um, not so much about this, but just where we've come so far as we're thinking about the presence of God who is spirit, who does not have a body, um, learning to speak carefully about these things protects us in a number of ways. Um, here's some conclusions we can draw from the idea of God's being incorporeal, not having a body. <clears throat> First one is, that means that it's not okay for us to speak as if the universe were the body of God, somehow. The universe is not God's body. He doesn't have a body. The universe is not his body. To identify him with the universe is pantheism. Uh, it's also not true to say that the created existence is a part of God. Uh, it's not a part of God. God created something that is not him, created outside of himself, reigns as Lord over it. It's not a part of him. We don't have a piece of divinity in us in this sort of, that's, that's not the relationship that the Bible describes between the creation and the creator. This idea that the universe is a part of God's being is panentheism. You, you may have heard those too, and I've wondered sometimes, what's really the difference? They're, they're very close um, in terms of what, what they're trying, how they're trying to portray creation, either as the body of God himself or as a component of God, a part of God. Um, and this third is a bit different, but it's helpful to put up here. The incorporeal nature of God does not negate his presence in the world. So to say that he does not have a body is not to say that he is not present in the physical world. He is present. He is fully, truly present everywhere. It's what David is celebrating in Psalm 139. He is here among us now. His power is fully manifested here. His knowledge is exhaustive here. His ability to act is without, uh, without challenge here. He is fully present. Now, the rest of our time, we're going to shift gears a little bit toward where Art was, was leading us, and we're going to think about what it means then. I mean, God is not, is not physical. He's not a physical being. Um, what does it mean then when we find him manifesting his presence visibly? Now, he does that, doesn't he? God makes his presence visible for us to see. Uh, how does that play into the conversation here? There's a couple of words we use to think about the times that he does that. One of them is the word theophany. And then we'll see uh, one type of theophany is what we encounter in the incarnation. So theophany uh, is the first word to look at. Theophany is simply a, a, any visible manifestation of God to human beings. When he appears and we see a, a, an appearance of God, a manifestation of God visibly, that's a theophany. We've talked about the burning bush. Um, 
the, uh, the third one of these, the, the glory cloud that led Israel uh, out of Egypt, that, uh, that descended onto the, into the tabernacle, um, that is a theophany. That's a visible manifestation of the glory of God. He has manifested himself for us to see by taking the form of an angel in places. Uh, he's manifested himself in the form of a human. That's not an incarnation. That's taking an appearance up. It's taking on a form. Right? Um, so he, he, has, he has done these things. Incarnation is, is a subset of that. And in, the incarnation is one uh, example of a theophany. And the in, in the incarnation, of course, how many times has an incarnation? This is a unique theophany that happened at a moment in time when the second person of the Trinity took to himself a true human body. In Christ, God has visibly made himself manifest uh, in, this, in this unique way. Uh, but it wasn't just a representation. He was taking on flesh and dwelling among us so that we, it's proper to say Jesus is God. Jesus is the name of this, of this, of this, uh, of this being. Jesus is God. Now we're going to, I'm going to start at some points, anytime I wander from my notes, I'm going to start having breaks in my sentences where I think through my language. That I, How do I say that? Because um, it gets difficult for us to, to speak uh, faithfully <laughs> in some of this. Um, so let's ask the question, what are these things mean regarding the omnipresence of God. Theophany, incarnation, God's glory is manifested in a specific place. Uh, What does that mean about his omnipresence? Does it change the reality of God's omnipresence in any way? Revealed himself, when God revealed himself in the burning bush, he, he did not hit the pause button on his omnipresence and appear there, and then the, that goes away and he resumes his omnipresence. A, a theophany does not in any way affect the truth that God is omnipresent. That is an attribute of God. We've talked about the simplicity of God. You you cannot take one of God's attributes away and he still be God. He is essentially omnipresent. How do these manifestations, and the real wrestling is the incarnation. What does this do in the realm of the omnipresence of God? Um, Do you remember when we said about that second kind of presence, the special presence? Remember we said that that language does not mean that God's power, knowledge, ability to act are greater in that particular place than elsewhere uh, in the earth. So when God manifests his presence in a specific location, it does not mean that now he has ceased to be omnipresent. Take, let's think about his enthronement in heaven, for example. The Bible says that God is enthroned. Uh, is he limited to the realm of heaven? Of course not. He's omnipresent. But there is a special manifestation uh, of the presence of God in heaven. Uh, we are to understand from this that there's a unique and privileged perspective from which he sees all things. But that doesn't mean that he cannot see all things from other perspectives as well. And in the person of Christ, uh, we see God walking among us. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Um, he has taken on a human form. But what's really important is this last thing here. Uh, because we have, historically, people have made mistakes on this and go, gone really wrong. When, when Christ took on flesh and was incarnate, lived among us, uh, and even now remains in a true human body, right? Glorified body. But he's still in a human body. He will be forever. In, 
Uh, what am I trying to say? It, 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 when he did that, he did not abandon his divine attributes. There's a, there's a what's called the kenosis theory of Christology, which suggests that in taking on flesh, he divulged himself of, of at least some aspects of his divinity, and that's heresy. It's not. Uh, the place that we have, uh, that really has helped us a lot in history, <laughs> all the way back to 451 AD, I and mean, we wrestle with these things now, but they were settled in a large extent for us at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. What they did there, we still use this language today, is they distinguished between the natures of Christ. They said that, that there are, Christ, is, uh, Christ has a dual nature. He has, the true, he has a true human nature and a true divine nature. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm guarding myself here uh, like, I, like I warned you I would. <laughs> That's for your good. Okay, so here's what I put on here. Um, when we speak of something being omnipresent, God is omnipresent, we're making a statement about the nature of God. But Jesus has two of those. He has two natures. This is what makes it so much more difficult for us to understand how to think, and especially how to speak. He is absolutely unique in this way. He is truly human. And guess what's a part of being truly human? Being limited to one place. In, in space, right? The Catholics make a gigantic mistake on this and think that because Jesus in his divinity is omnipresent, therefore that bleeds over into his physical human nature as well. And now that's why you can have one body being given in the mass all over the world at the same time, and it's okay because Jesus is omnipresent. Now you've, you've confused things that you may not confuse, Divinity is, uh, uh, an aspect of the nature of divinity is omnipresence, but an aspect of our nature is a lack of omnipresence. So in his human nature, Jesus is, um, is limited to a body, right? But he is also truly divine, and part of being divine is to be omnipresent. So here's the mind-blowing statement for the morning, at least it was for me, to, uh, the second person of God did not cease being omnipresent after the incarnation. What are you talking Yeah. Uh, here's here's the, the quote I'll give from the chapter. If the incarnate Christ lacked any essential divine attribute, then he was not God in the flesh. We have to be able to say that. That is true. You feel good about your understanding of that? Well, no, but when did we feel like we needed to feel good about that? We are limited to what does the Bible tell us about in this case? What does it tell us about Christ? Is he God? Yes. Is he true humanity? He better be or we're all going to hell because we're still under Adam then. Right? How does that work? I don't know. I don't have to know. I'm going to, I'm going to confess it. I'm, I'm going to go to my death confessing it. I want to be faithful to the scriptures. I don't have to understand all of how this works. I have no means of comparison because Jesus is utterly unique in this. So I can't look at something else and help me. That's how we figure things out as we compare it to something. Go, oh, I see here. So you can't do that with Jesus. There is nothing else for it to compare him to. Tom?
Well, there's, there, I, I know what you're getting. I, I would feel more comfortable saying something else. Rather than saying he set it aside, I would be more comfortable saying when he made that statement, he is speaking in reference to his human, to his human nature. Right? And again, that's what's so strange here. How do you talk about a person with two natures? If there's something true about it, so here's an example. Um, how do you like this statement? Jesus is omnipresent. How do you feel about that statement? Can you sense the, the need to qualify there? Um, so Second Peter speaks about the blood of God. God ransomed the people by the shedding of his blood. God doesn't, God's, doesn't have a body. This is a struggle of language. It's not a struggle of, of reality. How, how, can we, how are we allowed to talk? We're, we're going to wrestle with Jesus with how to, and that's why church councils and things have been so, so helpful to us. You've got a big room of people spending weeks trying to decide how, what's the faithful way to talk about this that doesn't wander over a fence on accident, right? That's just challenging. Jesus in his divinity is omnipresent. He must be. In his humanity, if he's truly human, he's not omnipresent. In, you see what I'm saying? Uh, we, we, we have to affirm both of these things. How does that work in a single person is another matter. Uh, can, I, can I move on to the, or, or should we, we could sit for a couple hours, cancel church, and just try to scratch our, our head here. Um, if you're feeling like you're being left in a place of confusion, I don't want to leave you there. I don't think we need to be in a place of confusion. We just need to be in a place where we acknowledge there's more going. When I see Christ one day on his throne, there'll be a lot more going on there than I'm seeing and that I understand. That was the case for Mary and Joseph as, he's in, as, he, as they're changing his diaper and he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's, that's just the case with, with this man, Jesus. Right? We're not going to escape from that. That's okay. You're not going to make a lot of progress in that. But instead of ending in a place of confusion, that should end us in a place of awe and worship and reverence. We don't have to... I go to a place of frustrated confusion if I'm feeling proud and feeling like I'm not going to quit until I... No. This, let this lead you to worship and awe. <laughs> Correcting language. Good job. So this is how we, we, we help each other. For the record, Dennis said God found a way. And then Art corrected him and said, God didn't find the way he always had it. Let the record stand. <laughs> so here's how I would, would have us end. Um, and that is by reflecting on what this means, God's care for us. What we're coming to see about his presence. You never have an experience or an understanding or a perspective through your life's Story. You never have one of those that is unknown to God. And in fact, one that God does not know in a, in a way that completely overshadows the way you uh, know of reality from that perspective. There is nothing that God doesn't know. There is, because of his omnipresence, there is no perspective from which God has not seen what's happening. And even though Christ's coming 
and let's say this carefully too, Christ's coming did not add anything to God's knowledge. You cannot add to perfection, right? God did not gain a, perspe- a, human, a perspective of suffering humanity because Christ came. He knew of our suffering far better than us before Christ came, right? But in the person of Christ, we are even given an intercessor, a, a human high priest who has walked in the same paths that we are walking, the same difficulties of life, um, from the same perspective as us. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest, and that's a human office, right? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It means there's not a single scenario that you can go through in your life where it would ever be conceivable to believe the lie that we often hear in our own head. Uh, that source of bitterness that says in the face of a certain command of Scripture, for example, uh, the command to forgive, the command to endure, the command to, get, to be patient. You ever, in your suffering, in a dark moment, you read that kind of command and you kind of laugh. You go, God has no idea what he's asking me to do. I forgive in general, but I don't know what just happened to me. What you're, tr- what you're telling me to do There's simply no truth in that suggestion whatsoever. There is no truth. When he called us to live as he's called us to live, he knew exactly what he was calling us to do. When he gave us the hard callings of his word, like forgive, patiently endure, he knew exactly what he was calling us to. And you know that he has called other people to the same thing who, are, who have been in harder circumstances than you'll ever be in. You know that's true. He knows their perspective. He knows what it was like, what it is like, what it will be like for them to have to be called to this. Have you ever been in a, in a time where you, you're, you're suffering and then you hear someone else and you go, well, gosh, I feel kind of embarrassed now. I, I thought I had it bad. And look at them. God is perfectly aware of the perspective and the experience of every single suffering human of all time. Where do you think you rank on that? He, he knows them all. And yet he is still sensitive to us, cares for us, cares for the things that we go through. It doesn't make him scoff at our pain. He cares. I mean, all of this just leads us to, to, to thank him more. And that's a great protection in those moments where I'm going, oh, you, I'm supposed to forgive this? The fact that he knew what he was calling us to when he commanded us in these things does not make him cruel or unthoughtful. What it does is it forces us to consider his promises to us. He promises to be with us always. He promises to give us the grace that we need to stand before him. I mean, that's what's shining out of those moments. And I think it's a good way for us to close out this study of the attributes of God, this section, to remember that um, it's not just that these things we've been seeing about God in his word are true. They are true. But it's not just that they're true. It's that the truth of every one of these things we've been learning about God each of them is a means for us to trust him more in the good times and the uncertain ones. 
They are means for our confidence when things are going for us and when they are against us. Knowing God like this is a means for our strength when our own strength seems to be just jokingly insufficient. We receive strength from assurances of who God is in these things. The one who commands us in his word knows what reality is. He is the Lord of it. He knows what our lives are for. He knows what he intends to do. And all power and knowledge and goodness dwells with him. And that is what leads us to be able to say the sorts of things we see in Psalm 46. Let me end by reading this, if I can. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's a pretty fair number of God's attributes we've been studying that show up here. You see the conclusion that this is commanding you to draw as a result. Uh, Let me quickly close this in prayer. Father, again, we simply thank you and stand in awe of your greatness. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we've been, been talking about here, that we would not just be coming to understand truths about you better, but that we would be faithful with them. We would be good stewards of what you've given us. We would draw conclusions from these things, that we have not trusted you enough. We have not been confident enough in you. We have not found our peace enough in who you are. And we know when we look for peace in our circumstances, it's hopeless. But here you give us an alternative. Find our rest in you. And you will give to your beloved sleep. We thank you, Father. Uh, Bless us as we continue to worship together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.